Greetings, bibliophiles, to Five Author Questions, or FAQ, presented by the Kalamazoo Public Library, the podcast that attempts to delve into the minds of writers using only five questions. I'm Sandra Farrick, Head of Youth Services. And I'm Kevin King, Head of Community Engagement. How are you doing, Sandra? Um, it's Friday, so I'm feeling awesome. All right, Friday. <laughs> and for Friday, we have a very, very, very special guest author, local author, Gail Griffin, who was born in Detroit and raised in the suburbs in around Ann Arbor, where she re- reveled in literature and rock music. My kind of person. One of her proudest claims to fame is having seen the Beatles in concert in Detroit in 1964. She away, went away to school and came back to take a teaching position at Kalamazoo College, where she taught literature, writing, and women's studies for 36 years. After publishing the requisite critical articles, Gail stumbled into the recon- stumbled into the recognition that she was a creative nonfiction writer. She has published four books of nonfiction, including Grief's Country, a memoir in pieces, which was recently honored as a 2021 Michigan Notable Book, and the events of October, Murder-Suicide on a Small Campus, which anim- uh, <laughs> intimatizes, sorry, a female suicide in Kalamazoo College dorm in 1999. Her essays, poetry, and flash nonfiction have appeared widely in journals and anthologies, and she has won awards in both genres. She is currently looking through a huge stack of poems to see whether a book might be hiding in there, and she has her mind on a collection of personal essays on whiteness and confronting racism. She lives in West Main Hill neighborhood with a black cat named Neil, or Nell, sorry, Nell, sorry about that, and her enduring life goal is to spend as much time as possible at the Northwest Lake Michigan shore. Welcome, Gail. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So good to see you. And where do you usually write? Do you write in Kalamazoo or do you write? Right here in this room at this desk. Nice. (laughs) So we got five questions for you and uh, no pressure. We're going to go super fast. No, I'm kidding. We're going (laughs) to take our time. The first question, question number one, what fictional character have you always wanted to meet in real life and why? I had so much trouble with these questions. I can't tell you. <laughs> you think I've spent my whole life with fiction. You'd think this would be easy, but it took a while. And I, but I finally came up with it. Um, in Toni Morrison's third novel, Song of Solomon, there is a woman named Pilate, P-I-L-A-T-E. Um, and she's mysterious and very powerful, slightly magical, um, often funny, um, she lives with her daughter and granddaughter in a house that has no electricity and no plumbing. Um, and the whole book pretty much turns on her. And the first time I read it and all of the subsequent times that I've read it, um, when Pilot appeared on the page, I was just galvanized. I just couldn't wait to see her again. Such a powerful figure. I would love to meet her. So, and would you, have you emulated her either in your writing at future points or, or in your own life? (laughs) I wish. Um, One thing we have in common, I, I don't, I don't think I've emulated her, but one thing we have in common, which might be part of what draws me to her is that pilot is very, she considers the past, her family's past to be sacred. And um, she wears an earring 
that's a little gold box. And inside that box, there's a piece of paper that has her family history on it. And the sacredness of memory in the past are pretty important to me. Wow, thanks. And for those of you listening, that follow-up question was just a follow-up question. That was just a follow-up, yes. That is, that is not part of our five questions. It doesn't count as one of my five. <laughs> yes, yeah, I know. We, we said it, we would uh, make sure we clear that up if we ever slip. Because sometimes it's hard to, have to, to not ask a follow-up. Oh, yeah, I think follow-ups are good. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so follow-ups don't count. Yes. So now we're moving on to question two, which is, what do you do to celebrate the completion of a book or a project? Well... The problem is there's not a moment when a book project is completed unless it's the moment that it appears in print and you hold it in your hands. Huh. Um, and by then you're so exhausted, you don't have time to celebrate or energy <laughs> to celebrate. Um, finishing a book is always a temporary thing. You know, you've got a draft of it and then you send it to some readers and they rip it apart and then you do another draft of it and then another draft of it, and then you get it to a publisher, and then that might be the time to celebrate. I might do some celebrating then. <laughs> but you know the publisher is going to send it to another editor, and you're going to have to do all kinds of edits. <laughs> so it's it. there is no ending, really. It just evolves and evolves and evolves until it's finally a book, which is the moment that you wish you could go back and edit it again. <laughs> um, but... Especially this book, um, three of my four nonfiction books are collections of essays, including this one. Um, the subtitle of Grief's Country is A Memoir in Pieces. And um, when I would finish one of the pieces, I would often have a sense of clarity and completion. And the one thing I can say that I have always done when I reach the end of something is clean up the desk and wash the dishes. <laughs> wow. Well, when, I, when I used to, when I finished final exams in college, the first thing I did was clean up my dorm room. Hmm. I, I don't know why it was just like clearing it all away. Or yeah. Something. It's pretty symbolic actually. Cause it's just clearing yeah. away the, the current project and getting ready for a new one. Maybe. I mean, this project in particular was not written as a book. Okay, yeah. It was written as individual essays, and round about the fourth or fifth one, I said to myself, well, it seems like you're writing a book. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so I, I really think of Grief's Country as, as a, a book that evolved in a way that my other books haven't. Nice. Well, From one little essay to nine or ten of them. Well, didn't Walt Whitman write Leaves of Grass like multiple times? I mean, over and over and over and over, over and over. Again. Exactly. So, so tell us about someone who is better than you in an area that really matters to you. Mm. Um, I'm a singer. I'm a good singer, mm -hmm. but I'm not a great singer. And I would do anything to be a great singer. And the voice I want is Linda Ronstadt's. Oh, nice. <laughs> now, there's a sad little footnote there in that she doesn't have that voice anymore. She's yeah. living with MS. And she says that the first time she knew something was wrong with her health was she noticed a change in her voice. Um, so it's hard for me to think of Linda as not having that astonishingly clear, powerful voice that she had in the 70s and 80s. But... 
Um, even at the time, I thought, boy, that is the that is the voice I would love to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's pretty underrated. As a female is she? I, I think in the history of history of music and rock, I feel like Linda Ronstadt is pretty underrated. Um, and she won't be in the long run. Yeah, I agree. I think she's some, just too great. Yeah, no, I agree with you totally. Yeah. Well, that f- leads right into our um, fourth question, yes. which is if you could pick a theme song for your life, what would you choose? Oh, this was the hardest one. <laughs> I was still going around and around about it yesterday. <laughs> um, and I come up with two. Okay. Um, one is Benny King's Stand By Me. Okay. And the other one is Elton John's I'm Still Standing. Nice. So there's a lot of standing going on. <laughs> <laughs> Those are great. Even the word stand in both of them, they're, they're kind of opposites in some way, if you think about it. You yeah, know, they stand, are. You know, stand by me is That's the whole. Me. Yeah, stand by me is, you know, be with me, be a support, and I'm still standing. Yeah. It's, like you said, that's you, you know, after all this grief in your life, you're still standing. I'm standing. <laughs> love <it>. Barely. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I love both of those songs. Um, there's actually a third. It was the first one that came to me and I decided to move on from it, but it's still in there. And that's a Tom Petty song called Learning to Fly. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was contemplating retiring from K, uh, and that, gosh, that would be nine years ago now. And really defining myself as a writer, I would play that over and over and over and over again. I just loved it. So can we have a trio of songs? Sure. You're standing, standing, and flying. And eventually flying away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like it. Yeah. yeah. So Gail, um, was the writing of Grief's Country, that this this powerful memoir of yours cathartic and helping you deal with your own grief? Um, I, I think in the long run it was, although the, the writing process that I described to you, how, how it was, it didn't start out to be a book and it was just a couple of essays. And then it was another couple of essays um, complicates that whole matter of catharsis. But I think when I finally decided that I was writing the book that I desperately didn't want to write when I knew I was committed Mm. to writing it. Um, That was a major decision. And I think following through on that and completing the book was cathartic in some way. Um, When you take painful or complicated personal experience and shape it into something, um, which is the process we call art making, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, shape it into something Uh, It has another identity. It's not just something that happened to you or something that's weighing on you or something that's, you know, upsetting your stomach. It's, it's a thing out there that you have some control over. Um, And so I do think ultimately when the book came out, which was 10 years after it began, and I've never taken that long to write a book. Um, I did feel a sense of catharsis. Yeah. For for the people that are listening that haven't read the book yet, which I know they will after hearing you talk about it. They better. Yeah, they better. <laughs> exactly. Can you give a little synopsis of, of the grief? Yeah, the sure. Um, I, I was in a uh, long distance, long-term relationship with a man 
for 18 years. And during those 18 years, we were together for, I think, a total of three. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, he was working in Massachusetts, and then he was working in Colorado, and I was working in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Um, and finally, he retired from the University of Colorado, where he worked. And we moved him back to Michigan, and he and I moved into a cabin that we'd bought in northern Michigan on the banks of the Manistee River outside of Kalkaska um, in the town of Fife Lake, Mm -hmm. pretty little town, Uh, old rickety (laughs) cabin. We could never figure out the wiring or the plumbing (laughs) at all. Um, And we'd bought it, oh, four years earlier, four or five years earlier. And I was on sabbatical from Kalamazoo College. I was writing my book about the murder-suicide that had happened at the college. And he was recuperating from his career. And so we were going to spend the year there and then move down to Kalamazoo. Um, We got married that December on New Year's Eve. And four months later, Bob disappeared into the Manistee River one night. And for about 15 minutes, I had no idea where he'd gone. And then I realized there was only one place he possibly could have gone. And um, how he fell into the river, we will never know. Although a lot of people have told me it really sounded like a heart attack. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was um, not only grief, um, the terrible irony of being married for four months mm-hmm. after waiting for 18 years to be together. Um, it was it was traumatic. It was traumatic grief, which is different. Um, that night is something I still don't think about very often. That's it's very frightening for me to go back to that. Um, so I, about two years, three years after this happened, I was asked to write uh, a piece for Encore magazine here in Kalamazoo. Um, and I wrote about the night that my cat brought an owl into my house. (laughs) Yes, he brought, (laughs) it was not a baby owl either. Tough cat. He brought the the freaking owl was bigger than he was. <laughs> um, and I, it was very spiritual. Uh, the owl was, was stunned, but not dead. And I took the owl out in my hands and put it outside and it flew away. Hmm. And it seemed like a tremendously symbolic or spiritual thing. Um, and I wrote about it for Encore. But even at the time, I thought this has something to do with Bob's death. I don't know what it is, but... So I went back to it and turned it into an essay about Bob's death. And that was the beginning of Grief's Country. And it's, it's the last full essay in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I began at the end of the book and started writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and published about four of the essays that are in the book, four or five of them. And I thought, okay, this is having some success. So let's, let's just take a deep breath and write the rest of the story. So I planned out several more individual essays that had to do with either what actually happened that night or my recovery or various dimensions of the terrain of grief, as I call it, which most people think is simple and it's not. It's very complicated. Um, and there's no straight line through it. There's, there's just wandering, which is why I called it Grief's Country. Um, to get that sense of geography. So I worked on those essays for the next four or five years until I had a book. And then I had a book. 
Wow. Thanks for sharing that. I don't know sure. about you, but I've got chills from all of that. Yeah, me too. Thank oh, you so much. Thank you. I guess. <laughs> so we are all done with our questions. That went oh. super fast. But we would love to ask you, what are you working on now or what's coming up next? Well, as Kevin said, I'm looking through the stack of poems over here to see if there's a book in there. Unfortunately, what publishers are looking for nowadays is books that are extremely coherent. (laughs) All the poems are about one subject or all the poems are one form or all the poems are one something. Mm -hmm. And mine are just absolutely not. But it seems a shame to have dozens and dozens of poems that I have published Mm -hmm. that are not in book form. So I'm looking at that. And I'm vaguely working on a project, uh, another collection of essays on whiteness and confrontations with race in ordinary life. Not an academic book or a theoretical book, um, but a personal book. Something we need. uh, (laughs) About how racism erupts in daily activities on the streets of Kalamazoo and in the classrooms of Kalamazoo and, and elsewhere. So those are my two things. Look forward to both of those. So thank Gail, you. yeah, thank you so much for being a part of our our podcast today. We we really appreciate hearing your story. And as Sandra said, it was it was beautiful and gave me chills as well. And and you know, uh, it's people well, that- I think it's it's an honor to be here and a pleasure. And I love your FAQ project. I think that's oh, great. <laughs> thanks a lot. Well, you can get this book at, at fine local bookstores, Grief's Country, um, by Gail. Griffin. All right. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of five, five author questions presented by the Kalamazoo public library. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. So you do not miss an episode. And finally, we leave you with a quote from James Thurber. It is better to know some of the questions than all of the answers. Thanks a lot. (laughs) 